Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecathirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nohadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the twenty-fifth day of the month Elal, in fifty-two days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Lord, as we have uh, heard your scriptures read, as we've worshipped you and lifted our voices to you, as we, as we have been sung to, uh, Lord, hopefully our hearts and our minds are now ready to talk intelligently and yet passionately about your word and its implications on our lives. So as we uh, do a deep dive into this chapter, this story, this narrative uh, about your movement in the midst of your people, and as we link it to today and how your movement can, can continue in our lives based on what you've done in the past and what you desire to do today, I pray, God, that you might do that. And that, Lord, for those of us who desperately are looking for a second wind from you to be revived in your presence, both personally and together as a church, God, would you do that in us as we follow the pattern laid out for us by Nehemiah in your movement in his life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James Billington is currently uh, the Librarian of Congress, the head of the famous...
Cong the Library of Congress, and he is the 13th man to ever hold this position since its opening in the year 1800. He has served since 1987 as the Librarian of Congress through five different presidents, Reagan, H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W., and now Barack Obama. And I don't know if you're familiar with how big the Library of Congress is in Washington, D.C. You can see a picture of it there on your screen, but it's absolutely huge. And I don't mean just the facility, but even in its volume of holdings. Inside our Library of Congress, there are 155 million items, including 35 million books and printed materials in over 470 different languages. It is the largest library in the known history of the world, and it makes every other library that's ever existed look minuscule by comparison. And James Billington is the head of this. And a few years ago, uh, with all this knowledge at our disposal, he was in an interview with a reputable magazine, and, and he asked a very probing and insightful question. Look up here on the screen. He asked, and I quote, with all of our access to knowledge, have we become any wiser? But what a great question from the guy who's the head of the largest library in the known history of the world. With all of our knowledge, he calls it info glut, the fact that we have a glut of information today, are we as a nation, as a people, any wiser? You see, what's awesome about that question is that he's pointing to a distinction that all of you know exists, and that's a distinction between knowledge, the accumulating of more and more facts, and wisdom, the ability to discern what is good and right, what is beneficial and helpful. And all of us know, at least implicitly, about this distinction. We make a distinction every day between knowledge and wisdom. One is more about information, the other is more about insight. One is more about facts and figures. The other is about avoiding foolishness. One is more about the head, while the other, as we're going to see today, is more about the heart. And one you can get from reading a book or just attending a university, but the other is hard won over a lifetime and hardly ever comes from just a book or a university. Truly, folks, in the known history of the world, wisdom has always been prized over knowledge. In every single culture that's ever existed, whether it be the Greeks, the Romans, the Romanticists, the Enlightenment philosophers, the Orientals, or even the seat of Western civilization itself, one thing that every age and thought movement has had in common is this distinction between wisdom and its cousin, knowledge, and wisdom is always more valuable than the mere accumulation of facts and figures. And so as we continue in our look at what it takes to get a second wind with God, what it takes to become revived in our faith journey with Him, which is a series we're in at our church right now, it should not surprise us that we come today to the subject of wisdom. And that what God's Word is going to do here is link this idea of you and me being wise people and attaining wisdom in this life with our second wind that we need and keep going with God. And so we've been studying, as you guys know, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah uh, this winter here at our church. And we're simply tracking how Israel, as God's people, received a second wind from God when they needed it the most, like when they were seemingly down and out and the most beat up. You might remember that they're rebuilding the walls and gates. 
around Jerusalem right now. It's about 445 B.C. Israel has been in exile for over 140 years, scattered all throughout the Middle East. But a few of them, about 50,000, have been allowed to return to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, and now they're rebuilding the walls and gates here in Nehemiah around Jerusalem. The Persians are completely in control of the whole area. And as Nehemiah is rebuilding this, the, these walls along with his people, we've noted each week, and this is really important, that this is not just bricks and mortar that this is all about, but it's the rebuilding of their very spirituality. Because as we're going to see, as soon as these walls get done, they bring the Mosaic law, God's truth and word, back into the believing community. They start to pray more. They have a laser beam focus on God through faith and trust in him. These fortified walls and gates are really more about the revival and what's going on in their hearts and minds and in the community of faith more than anything else. And so each week we've noted various themes of what it takes then to get a second wind. We've noted themes like prayer, grace, relational community, the ability to overcome obstacles, and then last week, generosity. These have all been key themes that we've seen through this series that you and I need to glean from this book if we're ever going to live lives that have perseverance behind it and can get a second win with God when we need it the most. And now as we turn the page into chapter 6, we're met with another key theme that is necessary to getting a second wind, and it's that of wisdom. And so here is the main point this morning as we turn the page into chapter 6, and that is that as you and I uh, seek a second wind, in wisdom is strength. Is that succinct enough for you? <laughs> in wisdom, there is strength. This is what chapter 6 is going to communicate to us. Now let me be very, very clear. Not just the accumulation of more theological truisms, though doctrine certainly matters, not just more Bible studies, though they matter greatly too. Not just more memory verses of your favorite passage, though this is a good thing to do. But I'm talking about knowledge that manifests itself in life-altering and transformational wisdom. This is where strength is going to be found. This is what God uses to give you and me a second wind when we need, need it the most. So let me show you this from Nehemiah 6 so that we can see what all this is about. And the first thing that you want to note upon closer inspection of this chapter that was read for you earlier is this. And it's point one in your outline. That wisdom and discernment are desperately needed at key times in life. And I would even add they are needed right when you and I are beaten up, down and out, kind of at a crossroads, and desperately need to get a second wind from God, what Nehemiah 6 is going to show us is that it's right there at that crossroad that wisdom is very much needed in our lives. And so let's dial into this. In Nehemiah 6, we meet once again some of Nehemiah's in-house enemies. We are introduced to them in, to, in chapters 2 and 4. Their names are Sanballat who is the governor of the neighboring province of Samaria, and then Tobiah, who is the governor of the other neighboring province, Ammon, and then Geshem, who is simply described as an Arab. And these are fellow leaders of Nehemiah in the vast Persian empire, the empire that's controlling Israel at this time. 
And you might remember that it is these three knuckleheads who tried to stop Nehemiah and his fellow Jews from rebuilding the walls and gates in chapters 2 and 4 because they didn't want to see Israel become strong again as a nation and get a second win with God. And you might remember that they initially tried to do this. Now, don't miss this because this is going to have everything to do with chapter 6. They initially tried to do this with strong intimidation tactics, what I called psyops, because they knew that they couldn't start a civil war within Persia, so they tried to intimidate Israel as they were rebuilding the walls, but they failed. And so now here in chapter 6, as the walls and gates are just about finished and a second wind is just around the corner, their only choice to stop all of this at this point is to completely take Nehemiah out of the picture permanently by assassinating him. I'm telling you folks, it's thick drama going on here in chapter 6. It's like a Bruce Willis action movie meets Days of Our Lives. It really is. It's like a soap opera and an action movie all rolled up into one. Take out the leader and the people scatter. Remove the visionary and there is no more vision. That's Sanballat's, Tobias, and Geshem's logic in this chapter. And they are going to act upon it. So, in four distinct ways, in chapter 6, they try to off Nehemiah. They try to take him out and assassinate him. And what I need you to see more than anything else as I quickly walk you through these four distinct threat scenarios is that each of them is going to require, now don't miss this, a different response from Nehemiah. A response that I'm going to submit to you takes an incredible amount of wisdom to know what to do. And it's going to be through Nehemiah's wisdom response to each of these threat scenarios that he protects Israel's coming second wind. So rather quickly, here are the four distinct threat scenarios of Nehemiah 6. Look up here on the screen. And they are that there's a covert one, an overt one, a manipulative one, and a pressure-filled one. So first, notice the covert attempt to take out Nehemiah. This is found in verses 2 through 4, where Sanballat and Geshem send word to Nehemiah and essentially say, this is a paraphrase, why don't you take a little day trip to the plain of Ono, which was about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and let's just talk about all this trouble that we have been having. I know this is going to confuse some of you right now, but for those of you who have seen the movie The Godfather, the original one, there's a scene at the Godfather's funeral where Michael Corleone, the son and heir apparent, is approached by one of the heads of the five families, and he says, why don't we just meet in a neutral place to talk about all these problems we have been having, and Tessio, one of your lieutenants, will guarantee our safety. And it's a moment in time in this movie, and that's exactly what's happening here in Nehemiah. They're saying, why don't we just meet in a safe, neutral place, the plain of Ono, and we guarantee your safety. But Michael Corleone in The Godfather knew something was up, and so does Nehemiah here. And so it's interesting. He doesn't confront the situation directly. You need to see this. He simply says, I'm busy working on the wall, and I can't make it. And this goes back and forth four times. It's a covert move by Sanballat and Geshem, Geshem responded with an equally covert response by Nehemiah. And now, now, hang on to that, because that's a wisdom response. And notice the second attempt that comes next. And this time, it's overt. Have you ever found this in life, that when people try to covertly get at you and it doesn't work, then they come after you. 
And this is exactly now what's going to happen in the second attempt in verses 5 through 8. They send a courier with an open letter. I don't know if you know what an open letter was back then, but it was the opposite of a sealed letter. An open letter was the kind of letter that anybody along the way could read. So if somebody sends you something in the mail and it's not sealed, they can open it and read it. This was an open letter that everybody could read. And the reason that they wanted them to read it is they're trying to feed the gossip mill here. And they're trying to spread the rumor that Nehemiah and the Israelites have committed high treason. That the reason that they're building these walls and gates is to rebel against Persia. And they even add fodder to this rumor by saying that Nehemiah is going to be the new king and oust the current king of Persia. And he's even going to be a messianic king. A king that the prophets had predicted would come. And about 400 years later, this king would come and his name is going to be Jesus. You guys are good. You went to Sunday school. So, so, so they're saying that Nehemiah is the Messiah to come, that he's rebuilding these walls in order to take over Jerusalem. That's the rumor they're trying to spread with this open letter. And they're hoping that through spreading this rumor that the king of Persia will hear it and kill Nehemiah himself. They don't even have to do it. Nehemiah wisely responds directly with, with no minced words at all. I quote, he says, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. In the original Hebrew, that phrase literally means, I love it. You are fabricating them out of your own imagination. Uh, to use the slang today, you're dreaming. This isn't happening. N not at all. I, I mean, you're crazy if you think that we're rebuilding these walls in order to take over Persia, as if we could even do that. God could do it. We could not. You see, Nehemiah here has a very different response than the first scenario. The first scenario, he responds covertly to a covert response. This time, he responds very overtly, directly and candidly, to the overt gossip and manipulation. And then with this understanding, notice with this in line, notice a third tactic now employed by Nehemiah's enemies. And this one is very interesting. They try to manipulate him. It says in verses 10 through 13, that they get one of Nehemiah's trusted friends, a guy by the name of Shemaiah, to ask Nehemiah to go with him to the temple. And he says, the reason I want you to go to the temple, Nehemiah, is because they're trying to kill you. Everybody knows that. And you can find safety in the temple. And if you didn't know any better, that would sound all good and fine. Like we use churches today for houses of refuge and places to go to to, to, to get away from things that are bad in society. And and this might all seem good and fine, but Nehemiah smells a rat, even with his good friend. And, and instead of re responding uh, like he did the two times before, he simply goes to Scripture this time. And he says, I can't go into the temple because if I go into the inner chambers of the temple and I'm not a priest, that violates the law of God. You see, King Uzziah had done it years before and God struck him with leprosy. Because unless you're a priest, you're not allowed to go into the temple. And Nehemiah knows that, and so he claims scripture here with this manipulation tactics. As one Bible expert says, he was able to discern that this was all a sham and responded with cunning and skill, relying on the Old Testament law as his excuse, thus foiling now a third time the plot to kill him. And then there's one more. In the very closing words of Nehemiah 6, it's easy to miss if you're not looking close, we see a final attempt to get Nehemiah out of the picture. And this is through exerting pressure. 
In verses 17 to 19, as this chapter comes to a close, we find Tobiah, one of the enemies, engaging in regular written correspondence with the nobles of Judah, the provincial and societal leaders of Israel. And Tobiah is essentially trying to get them to tell Nehemiah that Tobiah isn't all that bad that he's kind of half Jewish, half Ammonite, and that he's really a good guy and that they really shouldn't be having these problems that they have and that Nehemiah should cave in. They're trying to play on his fear, as Nehemiah will note here, and, and start to compromise a little bit. And what I find most fascinating about this fourth attempt, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just the way that they close the chapter, is that Nehemiah does nothing. He doesn't respond. He doesn't give any credence to their attempts to pressure him. He just clams up. And in a sense, the implication seems to be he ignores them. Uh, folks, this is fascinating drama going on here. Add all this up. You got four distinct scenarios, all with the theme to take out Nehemiah and threaten Israel's second win. A covert one, an overt one, a manipulative one, and a pressure-filled one. And Nehemiah responds uniquely and differently to each one. He gives an excuse of being too busy working on the wall. He answers directly and candidly uh, to malicious gossip and accusations. He resorts to the Old Testament law in the third one. And then he totally clams up when the nobles try to pressure him. Extremely varied responses to four very similar threat scenarios. And what most Bible experts point out, and I love this, about this chapter in Nehemiah is that it's filled with cunning and wisdom and just the ability to know what to do in these intricate situations by Nehemiah. And as we recognize this, we got to ask the obvious question, and that is that how did Nehemiah know how to respond to each of these threat-ridden scenarios? How did he know what to do? And the answer is simple. And it's our theme here this morning. The guy had wisdom. I mean, no matter how you slice it, he, he had intricate knowledge, wisdom to know what to do in these life circumstantial issues. And it was key to Israel getting their second win. I, 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 I'm always marveled that Christians use words all the time that we can't define very clearly. Have you ever noticed that? I and mean, we throw words around all the time, and when you're pressed to give a definition of it, even some simple words like faith or repentance or things like that, uh, we, we have an intuitive sense of what they mean, but we don't, aren't really good at putting words to them. Here's my definition of wisdom, and I've used this one for years, and maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't, but it's biblical. And that is that wisdom is knowing what to do when there is no chapter and verse. That's wisdom. It's knowing what to do in life when you don't necessarily have a chapter and verse. Because, you see, here's the deal. If all it took was a chapter and verse, if all it took was knowledge, clear and black and white, which I'm going to show you in a second here, the Scripture is filled with, that you don't need wisdom for that. I, I mean, you don't. No, where you and I need wisdom is in those more hazy, circumstantial, intricate, relational areas of life when there's not necessarily a chapter and verse but God says you still need wisdom. As we're going to see, we get wisdom from the scriptures, but it's very different than knowledge. So, so, so here are some examples. If you're, tempted, if you're tempted to abandon your vows and commit adultery, and you came to me with that temptation, I would tell you that you don't need wisdom for that one. I got chapter and verse. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. Thou shalt not 
commit adultery. Or it's tax time. And, and if you're thinking whether it's good or not to fudge on your itemized deductions on your Schedule A, and, and you came to me and said, Pastor, is that okay? I, I would say you don't need wisdom for that. I got chapter and verse. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23. The Lord hates dishonest scales. Or say you're sick of hanging out with Christians. I meet Christians like that. We're a difficult bunch to be with. And so there's times where you just kind of are sick of hanging out with Christians. And so you're thinking of abandoning church, abandoning small group, just going it alone, you and God, till you die and go to be with him in heaven. I'm telling you, you don't need wisdom for that. I got chapter and verse, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Do not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ approaching. Or say Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses knock at your door and they tell you that Jesus isn't really God and that the Trinity really isn't found in the Bible. You don't need wisdom for that one. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, and his name is Jesus. You see, there's lots of situations in life where you and I don't necessarily need wisdom. We just need knowledge. That's why it's so important to know the Bible. At 66 books spanning a 1,500-year period of time filled with knowledge on what you and I need to do in some of the most difficult times in life. And that's why we study the Bible all the time here. But please see, that's knowledge and wisdom, two different Greek words in the New Testament, gnosis and sophia, two different entities, two different animals. Wisdom has historically been defined as practical knowledge. That's why I say it's what to do in these more specific circumstantial aspects of life when there is no specific chapter and verse to tell you what to do. And though we're going to see in just a minute that the Bible certainly plays into our wisdom. I mean, don't hear me wrong. The Bible is a wise book that says it can make us wise as well. I'm just simply saying that we all know there are plenty of scenarios in life where there's no direct chapter and verse that tells us what to do, and this is where wisdom, the Bible says, comes in. So your kid kind of rebels a little bit. Have you experienced that yet? <laughs> I have. I, I, my, my son went off to college about a year and a half ago, and the second he went off to college, my IQ dropped by about 60. I, I mean, all of a sudden, all that wisdom that I had when he was in high school, now he tends to know more. And, and initially when he went off, I came at him, as you can imagine. I know it's hard for you guys to picture me coming at somebody, but I came at him, and, and my wife said, back off. And since that time, I'm wondering, should I be tough or tender? Should I push or pull? Should I talk or listen? Should I set more stricter boundaries or should I let go for a season? You see, there's no chapter and verse that tells me what to do there. I, I could point to certain verses that say don't exasperate your children and things like that. But in my particular scenario, in this season of life, responding relationally uh, to my children as they're each going into adulthood, that takes wisdom, amen? It takes a lot of wisdom. Or, or how about you have a defensive neighbor who doesn't know the Lord, and, and you care about this neighbor, and you want to talk to him or her about the Lord. Should you be direct and confronting or careful and easy? Should you try to break through barriers, or should you go around them? Should you play it safe in all your discussions, or sometimes be a bit more to the point? I don't know. <laughs> it, it takes wisdom to know how to respond in that scenario. Or, or how about a friend comes to you and says, I hate my job. I mean, it provides for my family, it pays the bills, but I'm miserable in it. I've been offered a, a, another job that's really risky financially, but it could have a really big payoff. What should I do? 
But what do you tell your friend there? There's no chapter and verse that, that tells you necessarily about that one. You see, you and I have to navigate these kind of scenarios each and every day. And all I'm saying is that from Nehemiah 6, it seems clear that that's where wisdom needs to kick in. I find it fascinating that in three out of the four scenarios we see in Nehemiah chapter 6, on only one of them did he have chapter and verse on the fourth one. Actually, it's on the third one, but only in one out of the four. The one where he said, I can't go into the temple because it's against God's law. All the other ones, he didn't have a particular chapter and verse. Those were going to see his biblical wisdom was in play, but it was wisdom, not knowledge, that was needed there. And so in the absence of clear biblical mandates, Nehemiah demonstrates wisdom, a godly discernment on how to navigate difficult circumstances, and I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that it was this wisdom that partially played into their ability to get a second wind with God. And so here's the deal. Could it be that some of us are floundering spiritually, lacking a second wind here today, because we lack wisdom in certain areas of life? But we're not applying wisdom and seeking it in the right places, as I'm going to talk about here in just a second. Or we've made some really wrong decisions that lack wisdom, and now we're in a difficult spot, even a spot that might bring us further away from God. And part of a second wind, then, of drawing closer to God, of getting revived, is the ability to seek and attain wisdom once again. That's what Nehemiah shows us. It's desperately needed at key times in life. And so one last question I want us to wrestle with in our time remaining before we wrap up, and that is how then do we get wisdom? If it is so needed for a second wind, then how do you and I become more wise in our daily lives? And I'm going to answer this in two different ways from our text this morning. First thing I'm going to do is show you one critical thing that's really cool in Nehemiah chapter 6 here that he shows us about how to get wisdom. Then I'm going to add some other scriptures to kind of fill in the gaps to show us other avenues the Bible gives us on how to get wisdom. So here's the second principle that we learn from Nehemiah 6 that tells us how Nehemiah found the wisdom he had, and that is that God gives wisdom when we ask, and trust him for it. I know that sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, Christians, even myself, mess this one up daily, daily. In the midst of navigating these four threat scenarios that require differing responses, I want you to look at what verses 9 and 14 do. Because in verses 9 and 14, we see Nehemiah doing something here that really turns the tide and makes all the difference. Let me read him for you. Nehemiah is speaking. He, he says, For they, his enemies, all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, he's praying there, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Then in verse 14, he, he, he says, Remembering, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, Oh my God, he's praying again, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. I, I told you in week one when we, when we started this series that one of the things you're going to notice in 13 chapters of Nehemiah is that on 12 different occasions, we're going to see Nehemiah praying in response to the threats around him. I called it a first response. The first response Nehemiah has is that he prays. Now, let's link that with chapter 6 here. Could it be that one of the reasons he prays so regularly in this book is because he needs wisdom? 
And, and he knew they didn't have a chapter and verse for these very intricate situations, though the Bible gives him wisdom. He, he knew that he needed God through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to show him the way and give him wisdom, give him insight when he needed it the most. And what I find so cool about these examples here in chapter 6, and by the way, these examples are number 5 and number 6 of Nehemiah praying. For those of you who are counting, so we're chapter 6, six different times he prays. One commentator, and he's not being critical here, calls these two prayers short and hurried prayers. He's right. If you compare these to the prayers of the New Testament or, or, or other ones, these seem rather short and hurried. But I think that's the point. Nehemiah is on the front line, amen? I mean, he's in the thick of everything. And he doesn't have time to call a prayer meeting. He's got to respond right now. And in that moment... Instead of saying, oh, gee, what did that latest scroll I read said? Or, you know, what would my best friend do? Or whatever. He just goes right to God. He says, God, I don't know what to do. Give me strength. Give me wisdom. Oh, God, help me in this situation. And see, I don't know about you, but I do that all day long. I'm not bragging. I'm just that needy. Uh, there, there's times I'm in a meeting here at the church, and we're dealing with some issue that has to do with all of you. And honestly, I'm the senior pastor of this large church, and I'm thinking to myself, I have the foggiest idea what we should do right now. And I tell them that quite often, but they're tired of hearing that. They'd like an answer every now and then. And so I, I just pray without them even knowing it. I just say, oh, God, give me wisdom, give me insight, help me. to. And then it comes. It comes to me. Or there's times I'm counseling somebody in my office, and, you know, like Daryl, our previous pastor, I'm not a really good counselor. I'm not. Everybody wants my advice on things, but then they hear it and they go, I'm not seeing him again. Because I, I just, I'm a teacher, I'm a leader, I'm not a counselor, I'm just not. But people still want to see me, so they'll be seeing me and they'll be laying out their tale of woe and it's really difficult and it's complicated and I'm like nauseated just trying to follow all of it. And, 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 and I think to myself, i got to help them somehow and I have no idea what to say. I mean, Noni would know what to say. I have no idea what to say. And, and, and so I pray, I do. And I can't tell you many times when I pray that the Lord gives me some wisdom there. And I'm like, wow, that, that's just the Lord. You see, the point is Nehemiah knew that his wisdom had to come from God. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? But we live in a day and age today that really does seek after wisdom. I, I, I mean, PBS specials are committed to how to be more wise. you got talk shows like Oprah and Dr. Phil that help us be more wise. You have so many books on Amazon.com that are trying to help us with self-help to be more wise. And I'm not saying that it's all bad or anything, but there is what the Bible calls worldly wisdom. It's just the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world that's kind of like a crapshoot. Sometimes it can work well, sometimes it doesn't. And yet you and I don't want to just bank on worldly wisdom, neither did Nehemiah. That's why prayer is so important. Are you seeing that? Because we need to ask God that the wisdom that we have comes from him and only him. You see, the New Testament writers believe this principle so strongly. I love how James says it. It's just clear and inarguable. Look at James 1.5. Look up here on the screen. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him say it with me. Ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given. And, and so the New Testament writers affirming what we're seeing here in Nehemiah, that the very first step to you and I attaining wisdom is we need to ask God and trust that he's in the business of giving us wisdom when we need it. Prayer is a starting point to being a wise person. 
Now, after that, let me share with you four additional areas that the Bible affirms itself that we need to get wisdom. And the first area you're going to kind of laugh at because it's going to seem like circular reasoning, but it's not. The Bible says that the Bible is a good place to get wisdom. It, it does. And it only makes sense that the Bible is clear and accurate knowledge of what to do in many life scenarios, that even in the areas where the Bible doesn't have a chapter and verse, the Bible itself says, as you immerse yourself in scriptures, you're going to become more and more wise. You're going to learn more and more how to think like God. And even in those areas you don't have a chapter and verse, you're going to tend to know what to do because you're a person who knows the Bible. Uh, look at how Paul says this to Timothy. He says, and how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible, which are able to make you, isn't this interesting, wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That, that word salvation doesn't just mean your eternal salvation. It means deliverance, the fact that God has saved you this in this life and for the next. It makes you wise for all the things that you need this side of heaven. What does the scriptures I, I got to tell you, I, I can't tell you many times I have been in the midst of making a, a rather difficult decision in my life, and uh, though I don't have chapter and verse for it, the, the answer comes to me gently through the scriptures. I remember when I was making a decision of whether I should move on from my pastorate in Canada to pastor my home church uh, back in Cleveland years ago. It was a very agonizing decision. I, I don't move on lightly, and, and, and I felt, quite frankly, guilty for, for leaving this church because I really wanted to be at my home church and was wondering if the Lord was releasing me or not. And, and, and so I was praying for that wisdom. And, and one day I was reading in my Bible, and I was just having my normal quiet time. I hope you have them too. And I was in Acts chapter 20. And, and Paul's on the shores of Ephesus, just getting ready to, to leave, to go head back toward Jerusalem, eventually end up in Rome. And, and he says to the Ephesian elders, he says in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So you're saying, well, what's the big deal about that? I'd been in London just about three years <laughs> when I was reading that. And, and I realized that Paul the Apostle considered three years a pretty long time to be with the church. Now, don't worry, I'm not getting ready to drop a bomb on you guys right now. I'm not. My wife heard my sermon last night and said, you need to make that clear in this illustration that you're not leading somewhere. I'm not. I, I just took that passage. I'm not trying to be eerie or anything. I didn't see this as black and white or anything. It's just that I found it uncanny that the Lord was speaking to my spirit through these words that it would be okay. It would be okay. It wouldn't be wrong for you to spend three years in Canada and then go pastor your church in Cleveland. Paul the Apostle did it, and, and, and he felt okay about that. And again, please hear me, that's not determinative. I didn't run into Kim and say, we're released, we're released. I didn't do that. I just said, wow, could it be that the Lord speaks to us, even sometimes when we're just in the Word, through His Spirit, because we're right in front of His truth. You see, the Bible many times can work that way. But we stay in the Word because the Word makes us wise. Second way that the Bible affirms that we get wisdom, now we have to be careful with this one because I'm going to word it carefully, is trusted others. Trusted others. Uh, the Proverbs in chapter 15 verse 22 say, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. And, and here's the key to this one, and that is that it has to be trusted others. And you know who the best people are to go to for advice? Now don't miss this. Godly people who you know are going to challenge you. 
But one of the biggest mistakes Christians make when they try to seek wisdom for others is that they go to people who happen to like them, who happen to tell them what they want to hear, and then they say, see, see, that's what I should do. And I go, but that's your cousin, or that's your best friend, or that's your spouse. They're tainted. I mean, they're going to tell you what you want to hear sometimes. No, I go to people who many times I know are going to probably challenge me in the decision that I want to make, but I know they're wise, they're proven, they're loving, and they're going to tell me what I think God wants me to hear. So when we find trusted others in our lives, they become a source for wisdom. And then I love this third area that, again, the Bible affirms, and that's experience. In Proverbs 5, verse 1, uh, the author uh, says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. Now, this is interesting. I, I, he uses the word my there twice. He's say, basically saying, I've lived life a long time. I have a lot of experience, which is what the book of Proverbs is about. And so, student, as you hear my wisdom, my understanding, be attentive to this because I have some things to teach you. See, the implication here is that experience in life is many times a great teacher of wisdom. I, I love the story that Ted Engstrom, who was a Christian leader for years, told a few years back in one of his uh, periodicals on leadership. He tells the story of a young man who became president of a bank. And intimidated by his new responsibilities, he went to the older, wiser president of this bank, the former president, and he said, Sir, uh, could you share with me the secret of your success? And this older guy looked at him kind of sternly and said, The secret of my success, young man, is two words, right decisions. And being kind of intimidated by that, the younger man said, But how do you make this right decisions? And this older guy said, One word, experience. In which the younger guy said, but how do you get experience? And then the old man softened and smiled and he said two words, wrong decisions. <laughs> See, that's really true, isn't it? I, I can't tell you how often I have made bonehead decisions and, 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 and yet I look back on those and the Lord used those to give me wisdom. He used those times of crashing and burning, even times of brokenness, to distill in me a character that made me more wise. I, I was joking with Kim last night as I drove home from church. I said, as I make that statement, I feel very sorry for my first two churches because they experienced the, the, the majority of my wrong decisions. Some of you are saying, no, we're experiencing those now, but you're losers for saying that. I, I really do. I feel sorry for them because, as we all know, we do things when we're young. We do things when we're, when we're kind of rambunctious, even as adults, that we pay dearly for. But the point is we learn from those. I remember years ago I was sitting on a, on a plane just a few years back, and I was sitting next to some young guy, and he's in a suit, you know, and I was talking with him. I was heading to Cleveland to be with my parents, and, and, and he said to me, I said to myself, so what do you do? And, and he said, I'm a consultant. He's like 23 years old. And I said, what do you consult on? You haven't done anything in life yet. And I realized at that time, and then I shared my faith with them, I realized at that time that, that, that this consulting thing was changing. Like in my dad's world, you became a consultant when you were 60 and had some experience in life and you had something to say. Now we're paying 23-year-olds to consult. And I know the answer to that. They're consulting on technical issues, and I, I get it. But, but the reality is there used to be something endearing about a consultant who had experience. Amen. Something endearing about an elder who's older. There's something endearing about a grandfather who can give wisdom. Why is all that true? Because the reality is, is that there's nothing that can replace experience when it comes to wisdom. 
So we get wisdom from the Bible, we get wisdom from trusted others, we get wisdom from experience, and then this is going to be redundant, but let's have the Alpha and the Omega be this. We get wisdom from, once again, prayer. See, here's my point in, in making this the fourth thing. You and I need to begin our search for wisdom with prayer, and we need to end our search for wisdom and prayer. I apply this. I, I pray for wisdom. Then I go to trust the Bible, trusted others, and I reach deep in experience. And even then, I don't know if I have a very clear answer. So you know what I do again? I pray. And I say, Lord, I'm going to head in this direction. I think this is the wise thing to do. But God, out of your grace, if I'm making one of those wrong decisions again, block me. Do whatever you have to, God, or show me the error of my ways. See, that humbleness before God. Remember what, what the New Testament scriptures say, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when we humbly come before him and, and say, God, I need wisdom, he tends to give it. One last story, and with this we're done. I, I don't want to be careful how I share this, so just bear with me on this. I, again, I'm not leading up to anything. About a year ago, the elders know this, I was in kind of a difficult place in my pastoring here. After leading this place for almost six years, I was very tired. And, and I just, I saw the head of our counseling center. I, 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 I actually took him out to lunch. I said, I'm not paying you, but I need some advice. And so I, I took him out to lunch and I, I shared with him just what I was feeling and some of the anger and some of where I was at. And he said, unequivocally, I, I think you're burning out. I think you're burning out. And I hate hearing words like that, like burning out, like I'm 49 and, and I'm too young to be tired and all that. And he said, I just think you're going at a pace that's too crazy. So one of my mentors flew in town and he spent a couple days with me and and, and he gave me some wise, sage advice, and then I was sharing with this with the elders, and they were praying. And again, I don't share this stuff on Sunday because I don't, I, I try to share authentically, but my job is not to bleed on you. And so I, I, was, I was going through this about last spring, and, uh, and, and, and I just realized that I just preached a year earlier on margin. Remember that? Talk about being a hypocrite, you know, on this idea of, of the fact that we all need to, to, to pace ourselves in life. So I'd never taken in the history of my pastor at four weeks off in a row. And, and, and so I decided last summer that I was going to take two weeks of study and two weeks of vacation back to back. And, and some of you probably recognize this. And I was gone for the whole month of July. Kim and I went to Cleveland, which is our hometown where we were born and raised. And we hid out there for a month. And I studied in a friend's house for a couple of weeks. And then Kim and I just enjoyed each other, took walks along the Chagrin River and saw a couple of friends, but even not too many. We just had a blast together for another two weeks. At the end of that time, as I was processing stuff, I was ready to get back here to Scottsdale, which is a good sign. And so we came back and I started preaching and I noticed that there was something different in my spirit. I was glad to be here. <laughs> and, and I felt refreshed. I felt rejuvenated. I, I joked after a couple of months, by the end of last September, I joked with uh, Pat and my secretary. I said, gosh, I've been here two months and this place hasn't sucked the wind out of me yet. I, I said, that feels really good. And then October came, and I still felt revived. And November came, December, January. Here I am in February, and guess what? I still feel really good. I, I learned that sometimes it just takes a little bit of wisdom, in this case, just to get away. There's no chapter and verse that says get away for four weeks. If there was, I would have done it. I, I just needed to, to take some wisdom, and I did. And, and that wisdom paid off hugely. It actually contributed my second wind. Sometimes doing wise things does that. So guess what? I'm going away this July again. <laughs> and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. And you guys are going to be sweltering, but I will be too. I'll probably be somewhere in the Midwest with my wife. 
studying for next year. I actually studied Nehemiah last summer. I'll be studying for next year, but also getting my second wind because it's a wise thing to do. That's just one small example. Let me pray for you right now and for your wisdom. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there are plenty of scenarios in this room here right now and for those watching online in which we need wisdom. We need wisdom to know what to do. And Lord, we need wisdom precisely because there is no black and white chapter and verse that tells us what to do. And so, Lord, through your word, through trusted others, through experience, through prayer, we ask you right now, I pray that you would grace these folks with a healthy dose of wisdom. And that, Lord, you would show them the way in the scenario that's playing out in their lives. And like Nehemiah, might they know how to respond and through that protect their very lives and souls to stay on the straight and narrow toward you. Would you do that in us, I pray. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.